But anyway, we're going to read God's Word, Romans chapter 13, and we're reading verses 1 through to 7. Let's hear the Word of God tonight. Romans chapter 13. A very important passage, very important subject tonight. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power to do that which is good? And thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their Jews, tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And we know that the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now my text tonight is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17. Let's hear the word of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now my subject tonight is in the form of a very topical question. And the question is this, when is it right for the church to call for and practice civil disobedience? Is civil disobedience a biblical right or blatantly wrong for the people of God? Now, let's admit that this is a very controversial matter, a very polemic subject. It is also very complex. It is not an easy question to answer. What do we mean by the term civil disobedience? Let me state what it's not tonight. We're not calling for armed rebellion against the government. We're not calling for armed resistance to attempt to overthrow the state or the government. We're not calling for individuals to break every law ever set forth by government authorities. We're not calling for armed insurrection or street protests. You see, according to Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, whenever Peter and John were forbidden by the Jewish authorities in the temple in their day, forbidden to preach and teach at all in the name of the Lord Jesus, here was their response. This is what they said. 
in the book of Acts, in Acts 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then a little later, they said to their friends when they met together in the upper room, this is what they said. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. You see, the church and the state were on a collision course in the first century in Jerusalem. And at times, God's people must obey God and not the government. And it surely can't be 100% right or even 50% right to obey the government if it means disobeying God in Christ. Peter and John didn't use their position to seek to overthrow the Sanhedrin Council. They didn't advocate the use of violence or force. They didn't resort to mob rule. They were not advocating resisting the temple guards and the police. They no doubt, I believe, obeyed the customs and traditions in certain and many areas. But in this area, they deemed it wrong to obey the government authorities that would cause them to disobey God. Now, there are other examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, in the days of Moses, the midwives refused to obey Pharaoh's order to kill all the male-born Hebrew children. They took courage, it took guts, but they disobeyed Pharaoh. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied the order of King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to his golden image and worship that image. And as a consequence, were thrown into the fiery furnace. In Daniel 6, verses 10 to 11, he refused to comply with the law in the days of Darius that said they wasn't to pray to any other god for 30 days but to Darius. Here he is in political office at the time. Here he is as an old man, but he defied the law. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the wise men refused to comply with Herod's order to report to him the whereabouts of the birth of the Christ child. You see, that was a form of civil disobedience. That was an act of defiance. You see, as a general rule, God's people must be the most law-abiding citizens that they can be by the grace and help of God. But when the government of the day calls upon you or forces you to do what God has forbidden or commands you to do something that must be opposed, that God has clearly commanded, then we must obey God. And when we examine the scriptures, we discover that the powers that be, yes, are ordained of God. We discover that they all exist under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But even though that's true, there are certain occasions when it's necessary to say we ought to obey God rather than man. So the answer to the question about when is it right 
to or for the church to call for or practice civil disobedience, we have to answer that there are times, there are certain occasions when it's right to call for civil disobedience in specific cases, in specific areas. But in the majority of times, the Christian community, God's people everywhere, must strive to be the most law-abiding people that they can be. Now, tied into this question is a secondary or a sub-question, and it's this. Is it our duty to disobey the government for forbidding public gatherings for public worship in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a huge health crisis? You see, for almost a year now, the whole world and beyond has been living with government restrictions on our civil liberties and our way of life. From the second, 22nd of March, which was Mother's Day in 2020, right up to the 12th of July 2020, our churches were all shut to public gatherings on governmental orders and advice. And when they did we open, we were instructed then to keep two meters apart, use hand sanitization products, wear face masks, limit social contact, there was to be no handshaking, no hugging, and it was not just the churches that were closed, but shops were closed, certain businesses, restaurants, pubs, gyms, etc., and they were all under the same restrictions. Even visitation to hospitals and care homes was greatly restricted and reduced. Schools and universities were closed and then reopened with the same restrictions, and even much of the teaching of our children and young people went online. Remember our teachers in prayer. Remember our pupils as they're being taught online. It's very difficult. And then we faced a, a second two-week lockdown in the month of November, December. And we're also in the middle of a third lockdown. We've been in lockdown since the second week of January. That is lockdown to public worship. And while the church buildings have been empty to public gatherings, we in Carrie Duff, the Free Presbyterian Church has been open. Our worship has been online. Now others, of course, have met outside using drive-in services. Some have moved their times for public worship. They've split their congregations into two and three. Now added into the mix, there have been some in Northern Ireland, rightly or wrongly, and I'm not their judge, who have resisted these measures who have blatantly refused to comply with government instruction. Others have turned a blind eye and they're still meeting. They're holding public gatherings. And they're arguing this, that the government has no right to demand or to make such a request upon the church. Hebrews 10, 25 is cited as defense. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And these other scriptures that I've mentioned, and we'll turn to them eventually. Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Daniel 6, 10 and 11. Matthew 2, 11 and 12. Acts 4, 19 and 20. 5, 29. These have all been added into the mix as a defense for refusing to comply with the government in the face of this pandemic and health crisis. Now, I want to ask the question, is this the correct thing to do in the midst of a health crisis? I want to try and answer that tonight. 
And I want us to remember certain biblical principles in relation to civil government. I want us to think tonight of four things. First of all, I want you to remember and think about the ordination of civil government. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, it says in verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now this ties in, of course, to Romans chapter 13 that I've already read in your presence. And it says in Romans 13 and in the verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be, are ordained of God. Submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, unto the king as the supreme ruler. And then, of course, there's lower rulers under the king, and governors are mentioned, magistrates. Why submit the simple answer? For, because, there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Here's the reason. The teaching of both Testaments, Old and New Testament, is this, that God in his sovereignty has ordained and appointed kings, queens, princes, lords, governments to exercise rule for the benefit of all the citizens of the world. The Lord himself is supreme. The Bible says the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. But he's a God of order, remember. He's not a God of chaos and disorder. And God in infinite wisdom and power, he has established certain offices, certain authorities for our benefit. And one of those certain offices is the ordination of the office of civil government. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23, section 1 states, and I read, God the Supreme Lord and king of all the world has ordained civil magistrate to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good, and to this end have armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. And of course, that's exactly what we read in the Bible. And here's the proof text, Romans chapter 13, 1 to 4, 1 Peter 2, chapter 2 verse 13 and 14. You see, understand tonight, civil government is a divine institution. And over in the book of Proverbs we read, speaking of the personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8, it says in verse 15, Proverbs 8 verse 15, By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles even all the judges of the earth. Civil government has been ordained and designed and arranged and decreed according to the power and wisdom of God. God has appointed kings and rulers to exercise authority over the people. And of course, Paul in his day was not referring to a particular form of government. Some governments, like Paul's day, were totalitarian. That's what the Roman Empire was. Nero was a totalitarian ruler. 
Others in our day and generation are more what we call constitutional democracies. That is, they rule by the will and consent of the people who elected them. Some other governments are very centralized control, like the communist government. I believe tonight that the words in Romans 13 verse 1, the powers that be are ordained of God, doesn't mean that every ruler is a holy, godly person. That's not correct. It's a reference to the political office, no matter who occupies that office, or how they live, or what they do and say. These men are, in fact, the servants of the living and the true God. They may not know it, they may not be aware of it. Was Nebuchadnezzar, according to Jeremiah 27 and 6, not called by God my servant? Did God not give him a kingdom? Remember what we read in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37. Here's Daniel's interpretation of the vision of the uh, image. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. Think of that. Nebuchadnezzar was given by God a kingdom. God called him my servant. Nebuchadnezzar was a totalitarian leader. He conquered Judah and Jerusalem. He took people captive. Daniel was one of them. He was involved in idolatry and involved in iniquity. He was a vile, wicked man, a proud man, the, the ruler of the whole of Babylon. And yet God had raised him up and God gave him his power to rule. And that power was ordained of God. And he was serving God's eternal purpose, even though he didn't know it. Whenever the Lord Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Pilate was saying to the Lord Jesus that he had power over him, power to release him or power to execute him. This is what the Lord Jesus said. John chapter 19 verse 11. Thou couldest have no power at all against me except that were given thee from above. Therefore he that have delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. You see, Pilate was given his power to live and to act and to rule according to the mind and the will of God. And I want to say tonight that every king who's ever sat on the throne of England, beyond, every queen, every human government, prime ministers, presidents, have all occupied the office. They have been ordained to that office by God. Every member of parliament, the leader of the House of Lords, all who are in the House of Lords, the Stormont Assembly, the Welsh Assembly, the, the uh, Assembly in Scotland, they all serve in that office as God permits. And oh, that they would grasp that. Oh, they would understand that. That the fear of God might be upon them. That they would say, well, God has appointed me. God has put me here. I serve under him. You've got to think of the ordination of the civil government. They think secondly and quickly of the obligation of civil government. You see, there's a distinct sphere of operation for the civil government. There's a distinct and separate rule for church officers, but there is a rule and duty for civil governments to fulfill. There is a rule and duty for church officers to fulfill, but both are separate. And we believe in the Free Presbyterian Church and the separation of church and state. 
The church of Jesus Christ is called upon to preach the word of God. We're called upon to hold uh, public worship, to have prayer meetings and Bible studies. We're called upon to administer the sacraments. We're called upon to administer church discipline where necessary through the courts of the church. And of course, we do that at a local level through the Kirk session. We do it through our presbytery and in other Presbyterian uh, churches. They have synods and some even have the general assembly. Our role in remit also includes the evangelization of the lost. And civil government is not to interfere in the life or the witness of the church. They're not to tell us what to preach. They're not to tell us when to hold a meeting or to have discipline. Listen again to the word of God, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We're going to ask the question, why is God appointed there? Civil governments are charged by God, and they're there to promote the peace and the well-being and the principles of true justice for and behalf of their people. They're there to promote right living among the people under their care. They have a duty of care to all their citizens. So the civil government functions to protect the liberty of its people, to promote their well-being and prosperity, and that responsibility is toward all their citizens. They're to praise those who do good and well, and they're to punish those who do evil. It's a pity the United Kingdom government forgot that during our 40 years of hell-inspired trouble with the IRA in this country. That is their God-given duty. Praise those that do well. Punish those that do evil. It's not what we read in the book of Romans tonight. Didn't I read that in Romans chapter 13? If we turn again to that passage, it says there, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doth evil. Whenever the Apostle Paul was counseling young Timothy at Ephesus, this is what he said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and in the uh, verses 1 and 2. He said this, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may live a, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Note the reference to quietness, to peace. It's true that civil government must act in times of war. It's true that in times and days of armed rebellion, whether in uh, domestic terrorism, whether in civil war, a time when the country's under threat of any kind, civil government must act. And that includes times of health crisis and times of pandemic. 
There's a duty of care to act in accordance with the law of God. Civil government is responsible to and accountable to the Lord. He is the absolute supreme ruler. He's the living and the true God. And human government and all who occupy those offices of human government are dependent on him for their own life and their well-being. And civil government must exercise their duty before and unto the Lord. Now many in civil government tonight are not godly men or women. They do not know and love the Lord. They do not live according to God's law and God's truth. But that doesn't remove their obligation. Even though we live in a day of moral relativism and men do that which is right in their own eyes. The prime minister, the human government can oftentimes be affected by the latest celebrity craze that uh, sweeps uh, across the internet. They can be affected by certain novel ideas and driven by the media. But that's not the standard for human government in the United Kingdom, the United States of America, the European Union, the Republic of Ireland. The standard for human government that determines their obligation to their citizens is the word of God. The word of God says that they're to praise those that do well and they're to punish those that do evil. And human government is obliged to rule according to the glory of God for the good of their people. And human government's every policy, whether in education, health, law and order, finance, the welfare of the poor, employment, every policy should be governed and guided by what the scripture says. And human governments and kings and queens must discharge their office according to the word of God. So here's their ordination. Here's their obligation. Now, I want you to think of obedience to civil government because the true Christian has a duty to submit to civil government. We have a responsibility to do certain things. Here's the first thing. We're to pray for the civil government. Timothy was taught, I exhort thee therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercession, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. We're to pray for their personal salvation. We're to pray for their, that God would give them wisdom and courage to do the right thing. Pray for their leadership skills. Pray that they'll rule by the knowledge of God and his precious word. Let's remember to pray for our leaders, our queen, and all that have the rule of law over us. But not only do we pray for them, but we promote them. First Peter chapter 2 verse 17 says, Honor the king. That means we're to give them due respect for the sake of their office. We're to reverence them. Remember, Paul was writing about Nero. People could say, but he doesn't respect us. He's an evil ruler. Uh, he he uh, wants to put us to death. We could even ask in our day, well, what about the liberals in government? What about the loony left that want to promote and pass laws that are contrary to the law of God? We could argue that they're not fit for office, that they should not be there, that we do not like their policies, that we distrust them, that we disrespect them. But let's hear the word of God. Honor the king. And I must confess I've been rebuked when I thought of this scripture because over there in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and in the verse 20, 
we uh, read uh, these particular words. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 20 and listen to what the scripture tells us. Curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice. And that which of wings shall tell the matter. We're not to speak evil of dignitaries lightly. We're to not only pray for them, but we're to show proper respect to everyone in civil government. Especially those elected officials, regardless of their personal character. We can't rebel because we simply do not like their laws. We're not only to pray and promote them, but we're to pay taxes. We may not like it, but we have to do it. That's exactly what we're told here in the book of Romans. We've already read it, Romans chapter 13. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. Listen to what is said. It says, For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their Jews tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We have a responsibility in this area. We're to obey and submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And here's one of them. Pay your taxes. Here's another form of obedience, and that is practice. Think of the lawful rules of the government, the traffic laws. Don't use a mobile phone while driving. Young people, you'll be fined 200 pounds. You'll have six penalty points, according to Sammy the Seer. It's a new law, it's just out. Wearing a seatbelt every time you get into the car, clunk, click, and every trip. Make sure your vehicle's insured and taxed and MOT'd. Do not drink and drive. Never, ever drink and drive. Do not take drugs and drive. Obey the traffic laws when it comes to speeding. There's cameras everywhere. Speeding fines will be imposed. They're there for our benefit. Welfare of our safety and others. What about the building regulations? People have tried to defy them out of the buildings taken down. What about times of curfew? Stop by the police. Where are you going and why are you out? It's curfew. Think also of this health crisis. What does the scripture say? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Remember Peter wrote these words to Christians who were under the rule of Nero. He was a godless man. He was the leader of the Roman Empire. You think of other men like Herod. Think of the governor Felix. You think of the imprisonment of God's people and the suppression that they faced and the murder that was carried out in Nero's name and others. And I know that these words are hard to read and hard to understand, but we're reading in the scriptures by Peter, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. You see, that takes it onto a different level, doesn't it? It's not for the ruler's sake. It's not for the country's sake. It's not for your family's sake. It's not even for your own sake, but it's for the Lord's sake. And we've got Christ's example. 
We have Christ's exhortation. He, he obeyed the law. He paid his taxes. He was not a rebel. He was not a revolutionary. He didn't raise an army. That's not why he came. He faced the challenges of the day by the grace and peace of God. And I know that we're living in the last days. And I know that challenges will intensify. But our obedience to civil government is that we pray for them. We, we honor those in office for the office sake. We pay our taxes. We, we practice the lawful rules of the government according to our conscience before the Lord, for the Lord's sake. And here's my last point tonight. We've thought about the ordination of civil government and the obligation of civil government and obedience to civil government. But let's think about opposition to civil government. See, we're called upon in the scriptures, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. But I want to say tonight, obedience has its qualifications. There's a limitation to that rule. It's not an absolute rule. It's a general rule. Turn over there to Exodus chapter 1. We read there in verses 16 and 17. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew woman... And see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then ye shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Here's the Hebrew midwives. And they defied the order of Pharaoh. They refused to kill the males that were born. This was the draconian law. The Bible says they feared God. And they saved lives. They disobeyed the order of Pharaoh. They knew the consequence. They knew what the command was. I want you then to come with me to Daniel. Look with me at Daniel chapter 3. And what do we read there in Daniel chapter 3? We read about three young Hebrew men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3 and 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Was that not civil disobedience? Was that not an act of defiance? Think again of Daniel. Daniel's an old man. It's Darius the Mede that's on the throne. And what do we read there in Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 and 11? We read there, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in the chamber towards Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. In other words, Daniel chose to disobey the law of the land. He knew the command to pray to no one else but Darius for 30 days. And Daniel broke man's law and obeyed God. Then come to Matthew chapter 2. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Here's the wise men. Remember they've got this command from Herod to report to him where they found the Christ child. And it says in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. The wise men disobeyed God or disobeyed Herod through the warning of God. They refused to give up the birthplace of Jesus Christ. And then we come to Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Think again of Peter and John. Let me read it to you for the sake of clarity. Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. The words will come up on the screen. Think of these words now. We read there in Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And in chapter 5, verse 29, we read, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Peter and John were told not to preach or teach any more in the name of the Lord Jesus. They took that message to heart. And they decided we have a duty to obey all the lawful laws of the human government so long as they do not conflict or are not against the moral law of God. But we will not do what God forbids. We'll not comply with what human government commands because forbidding to do so would violate the law of God. You see, here's the rule, and it's clear and plain. There's a limit to our obedience. And if there's anything contrary to the Holy Scriptures, the authority of God, contrary to the moral law of God, then we as God's people must be prepared to break the law of the land and suffer the consequences and commit ourselves to the Lord. Now let me ask this as we wrap this up. Bear with me for a few minutes. Human government in our country has not asked us to kill or to take the life of a child or an aged and infirm citizen. They haven't told us that we can't pray publicly or privately. They haven't told us that we can't worship God publicly or privately. They haven't told us that we can't preach the gospel even in the streets of our province. They haven't told us that we can't give out tracts. They haven't forced us to pay for abortion. They haven't forced us to place children with homosexual couples. They haven't forced us to bake cakes that promote sodomy. They haven't forced us to rent rooms to homosexual couples, at least here in Northern Ireland. And until they do so, then we have to say we must comply with the law of the land. Now, what about COVID-19? What about public gatherings? What do we do? Well, what does the law require that we do? See, human government, I believe, have a duty to stop the spread of this virus. So they have asked for social distancing, limiting ourselves to meeting others. They have asked us to wear masks in shops and in church. They've asked us to hand sanitize. They've asked us to, to uh, limit our travel. Now, we might say, well, these are stupid things. They're inappropriate. They're over the top. I can see no sense in it. But I want to point out they're not asking us to break God's law. And therefore, we must submit to this 
for the Lord's sake. See, human government are not forcing us to break the law of God. Human government is not forbidding us to worship the Lord. Human government is not preventing us from preaching the gospel. They're not saying you can't use electronic means online. They're not saying you can't have a drive-in service. They haven't told us to stop preaching or praying or reading the word of God. They're not treating the free Presbyterian church differently from they are treating gyms and shops and restaurants and pubs and clubs, sporting activities. They're not singling out the free Presbyterian church or singling out other religious groups. In fact, this third lockdown had no legal requirement. That was a decision taken by our presbytery. Therefore, in the light of this, I don't believe it warrants a call for any preacher or any church for civil disobedience. Martin Luther practiced civil disobedience in his day. He was told that he couldn't preach, and he preached anyway. He ought to obey God rather than man. But during the Black Plague, the health crisis that engulfed Germany in his day and generation, he wrote this, and I quote, I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated. This perchance infect and pollute others. If everyone would heed and help ward off contagion as best he or she can, then the death toll would indeed be moderate. If someone were, are so foolish as to not take precautions, but aggravate the contagion, then the devil has a heyday and many will die. Richard Baxter in 1673 argued for a similar thing, for the greater good, for the safety of the common public. The church should for a time abstain from public gatherings on the Lord's day. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when there was a cholera epidemic in the 1800s, said that we need to take scripture seriously as to cleanliness. And if overcrowding were carefully prevented and other um, sanitization improvements were carried out, then this disease and its effects would be mitigated. In World War I and World War II, churches were closed at night. There was a, a blackout, remember. In 1918, churches closed in the United States for many weeks because of a, an epidemic in that area. You see, the church is not the only organization that can't open to public gatherings. But the government has told us that we can still preach, we can still pray, we can still read from the scriptures. The government haven't told us that we're not to preach certain things. They haven't told us what we're to say or not to say. Now that day will come, and that day could come. That day is coming, but folks, it's not here yet. And I want to say in closing, Every true believer must strive to be the best citizen they can and obey the law of the land and be an example of good works. We have a duty, of course, to call civil government to account. 
We accept that there are times and there will be occasions when we must obey the Lord and suffer the consequences. But let's, until that time comes, recognize Christ as Lord and Redeemer, the supreme ruler, the head and king of the church. Is he your Lord and Redeemer tonight? Have you a regard for him? Do you have a regard that Christ has commanded you to pray for kings and queens and are all in authority, to, to honor them, to pay your taxes, to, to, to practice the, the laws that are there for our well-being and for our good? Will you tonight remember the gospel, the power of God unto salvation? Will you understand it? Will you familiarize yourself with what the Bible teaches? Will you pray for true revival for the land? Because these are all part and parcel of what it means not only to be citizens of Northern Ireland, but citizens of heaven tonight. So I commend this message to you. It has to do with the church and civil government. It's a very complex, controversial, thorny issue. But I trust you'll get sight, even tonight, of the ordination of human government. And their obligations and ours. And why you must render obedience to them and what it means. But bear in mind there's a limitation. And when they compel us or command us to disobey the Lord, then we must obey God rather than men. And we take our stand with the Hebrew midwives. The three young men in Daniel's day. Daniel himself, the wise men. And even Peter and John. And others when they were told not to preach. The word of God or teach in the name of Christ. Until on that day comes. Let's strive and endeavor. To be the best citizens that we can be under God. I commend this message to you. Please listen to it carefully. If you have any questions please contact me. If I've left some stone unturned, then please speak to me. I don't want to deliberately cause offence, but I've been asked this question, and I've tried to answer it as best as I know how, knowing that I'll give an account of myself to God.